Well, now we come really to the uh, pinnacle of worship. We hear from God's Word. We hear it proclaimed, opened up, explained, applied. And we're in the book of Ecclesiastes, as we have been since the beginning of the year. And Lord willing, we'll continue on and finish Ecclesiastes this summer. Today we're in Ecclesiastes 9 mostly, but we have to pick up a couple of verses from chapter 8. Starting in 8.16, we're going through 9.9 today. Because really those connect, the end of chapter 8 connects to chapter 9. And I've entitled the message, Principles of the God-Centered Life. That's what we're talking about today. How to live out the God-centered life according to this passage and the principles that are taught there. We often think we know a lot about living as a follower of God, as a follower of Christ. And we do if we're learning, if we're coming to church, if we're around other believers, if we're reading the Word, if we're asking God for help through prayer. But there's always more to see in Scripture. You'll never plumb the depths of Scripture. You'll never know it all. So let's look at this today. I want to read to you 8, 16 through 9, 9. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. For I have taken all this to my heart and explain it that the righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. It is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good and for the clean and for the unclean. For the man who offers a sacrifice for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. For whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love and their hate and their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works." Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your Hevel life, which he has given to you under the sun. And then the NASB leaves this out. All your Hevel days. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. We've been talking as we've worked through Ecclesiastes about this word Hevel. It's a strange sounding Hebrew word. It's not one that we use in English, of course, although sometimes a, a word gets transliterated into English from the original languages, like baptism or baptize. It just comes from the Greek baptizo. Hevel just means breath. It means that it's fleeting, it's transient, like we read in the psalm in our scripture reading. It's very short-lived. It literally means a wisp of smoke or a breath. Now, it's mostly used in Ecclesiastes. There are other places in the Bible. It's always translated either breath 
or an idol, and the idea there is an idol is like a breath. It's gone. It's a thing. It's here one day. It's created by man, and then it's gone. But in Ecclesiastes, this word havel comes up quite a bit because that touches on the main theme. The main theme is life is short. Life is a breath. Life is a vapor. And we need to remember that as we live. We need to live in light of the fact that we're only going to be here a short while. He's working through that all the way through Ecclesiastes. He's telling us, given that life is so short, here's what you need to know. And here's what you need to do with that information. Now the conclusion at the end of the book will be fear God and obey his commandments. But he's looking at all that he's seen in life, all that he's done in life, all that he's heard in life. And he's saying, It's all fleeting. Your life is fleeting. Even if you're a believer, even if God has blessed you tremendously, which he does as believers, he blesses us. We're still going to die. Life is short. So what should we focus on? Well, King Solomon in Jerusalem, king over all Israel, preaches a message or maybe a series of messages that then become the book of Ecclesiastes. And he's teaching the young men. He's teaching the young people in his kingdom, in his palace. And he's telling them, here's what I want you to know so that you can live a life that's God-centered, so that you can live a life that glorifies God. Now, it's not in the New Testament language that we're used to. A lot of the words and phrases in theology is, is opened up more in the New Testament, but this is the Old Testament book on how to live a wise life, or we could say how to live a godly life, according to King Solomon. So today we're looking at three principles of a God-centered life. Three things. Three things you need to know. Three things you need to remember. Three things you need to live in light of. God hasn't left us without any help. God hasn't left us without this wonderful book. He's given it to us. We need to study it. We need to learn from it. We need to live out what it tells us to do. Too much of Christianity today ignores the Bible. Or if they know the Bible, it's one or two verses. Maybe one book. Or one testament. We need to know the whole Bible. So that's why I say join a church that teaches the Bible. That preaches the Bible. And stay there. And plant your family there. And grow there. Three principles on a God-centered life. Number one. All things are in the hand of God. All things. And really since chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes. He's been telling us about God's sovereignty. God's providence. That God controls all things. Created all things, yes. But he controls all things as well. He upholds them. The fact that we're here today, God is upholding every atom in your body. The fact that you breathe air, God is controlling all of that. The fact that you are here listening to the sermon, growing in the grace of God is all under his sovereignty. And Solomon said in chapter 3, there's a time for everything because God has designed it that way. And he comes back to this theme over and over in the book. So starting in 816, when I gave my heart to know wisdom, to see the task which has been done on the earth, I gave my whole self, my heart, all my strength, he's saying, to find out wisdom from God. And God does give people wisdom. He gives it through the word. But Solomon wants more than that. He wants to know how things work. He wants to know why God does what God does. Why things end up a certain way on the earth. And that's his main task here. He says, I I wanted to study that. I set out to study that. And we've already seen where he tried different things in his own life. And they always took him into idolatry and sin. And he's looked around at others. And he didn't find the answer there. 
And he said, I, I gave my heart to know this wisdom, to determine how God works in individual people's lives. What happens when a person sins their whole life? Is there anything I notice? Do they die always sooner than the righteous? Does the righteous person live a long life like Moses, 120 years every time? He said, I wanted to figure out how God works, how he works throughout history, how he punishes people for their sin, how he rewards his own children. He's really saying, I want to go beyond scripture because Solomon had a Bible. He had uh, what had been written up until his day. But he's saying, I want to know more. I want to know the inner workings of God's mind. And he says, even though one should never sleep day or night, you could stay up all night. You could work all the time trying to figure this out. He's going to say it can't be done. And people do. They worry. They stay up all night worrying. They may not say, I'm trying to figure out God's mind, but they're trying to guess the future. They're worrying about tomorrow. What's God going to do tomorrow? Is he going to give me what I need? Am I going to have this new house, this new car, this new job, or just sustenance for each day? Is he going to heal me from this illness, from this disease? People lose sleep over it. And that leads to health problems in itself. You don't sleep, you're going to suffer health problems. He's already talked about this in regards to money. It's the only other place he mentions sleep. If you go back to chapter 2, and he talks about the love of money causing a loss of sleep. This is also a reality. 2.22, he says, For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving, which he labors under the sun? Because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is Hevel. This too is fleeting. This is fleeting. People don't sleep because they're worried. They're worried about money or being a workaholic in that case. And in the chapter we're looking at here, they're concerned about what God is doing. What is God going to do tomorrow? Where's our country headed? What about the political spectrum? What about the financial spectrum? Is this going up? Is this going down? Is God going to take care of me? If I invest in this, is it going to work out? Should I take this job? Should I go here? People are losing sleep. And Solomon says, even if you stayed up all night and worked all day at it and continued and continued and continued, verse 17, and you looked at every work of God, everything God has done. You studied all the history books. You studied all the history in the Bible. You studied all the science, which we've gone through much of that already in Ecclesiastes. He says, I concluded this. Here's the thing that came to mind when I thought about all this, when I examined it. Man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. You can't figure it out. And under the sun is on the earth. We can't see into heaven. We have to have God's word to tell us about that. But we can look around and see things on the earth. And under the sun is life on this earth. And we can't discover really what God is doing. And we can't discover why he's doing it. We can only look at what the Bible says. And we can't go past that. And he says, even though man should seek laboriously work and work and work, you're not going to discover it. You're not going to find it out. And though the wise man should say, I know, he can't discover. You have the worldly wise today who say, we, we know everything about the human body, about space and science. Or if we don't know, we'll figure it out through science. The Bible says you're never going to figure all that out. Yes, we should constantly learn. We should use that information to glorify God. But don't think we're ever going to know everything. We know very little even about the human brain. It's our own brain and we know so little about it. The universe, we know so little about it. Even our own hearts, the Bible says, fool us time and time again. We don't even know ourselves. And yet we think we can understand God. Even the wise Christian sometimes fools himself and thinks, you know, I know all things in the Bible. 
I've got my PhD in theology. Maybe you really do, or, or maybe you kind of think you do because you've studied so much and heard great teachers. But he says you can't. You cannot know as much as God. And you can't understand why God does things. You will not discover it. This is what one of Job's friends asked Job. His friend's name was Zophar. And Zophar said, can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? Do you know how deep God's knowledge goes? Do you really understand the extent of all God's attributes? No one can understand the mind of God fully. You can study history, but you can't actually say why God did certain things when he did it. We can use wisdom. We can make our best guess. We can say, oh, I see now. God had me keep hitting my head against the wall so I would learn a lesson. And that's wisdom. But you can't know all the things that God has done in your life and why he has done them. His plan for humanity as a whole, you can't know that. You can't know an individual person's history and why that's all there and what God is doing in their life. God's mind is incomprehensible. He knows all things. He sees all things. And yet, we just see so little. We're just here for a short time. Our life is a vapor. And we sometimes pat ourselves on the back and think we know so much. We think we understand so much. Paul says, this is a reason to praise God because he is so deep. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. That's a reason we should praise God. We shouldn't get frustrated because we don't know what God knows. We should praise him. He knows all things and he's in control of all things. We should love him. We should be comforted by that truth. We don't know how it will all work out. We don't know what's going to come in the future. We don't know why God let this person die. We don't know why God gave me this disease or that problem. Why did I lose that friend? Why did my adult child run off into sin? But here's the conclusion. The only thing we can say, verse 1 of chapter 9, for I have taken all this to my heart and explain, really the better word is examined here, He's examined it, that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. That's where you want to be. You want to be in the hand of God. When you're in the hand of God, he's taking care of you. We want to be in the hand of God. That's a good place to be. As Solomon looked at all the life that he had experienced, all the other people that he'd talked to, all the wisdom that he'd gained, and he said, all I can tell you, is that it's good to be in the hand of God. That's what he's saying. Righteous men, wise men, and their deeds. Believer, followers of God. It's good to be in God's hand. And that's really all we can say. We can say what the Bible says, and we can say it's good to be in God's hands. And he finishes out this section saying that man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. You don't know what today is going to bring. You can't even predict the next minute, much less the next hour or 20, 30 years into your future. Is something good or bad going to happen to us today? Are we going to hear good news after church or bad news? You don't know. Enjoy a time of peace or be put on a trial. And we don't know when those are going to happen. What's God going to do in our life next? You can't say. Now, for some people, that really upsets them. They want to know. They want to control. There's even this worldly thinking that we control our fate. We control what's happening next. The Bible says you don't. You don't know. And that shakes people up sometimes. Any of these scenarios await us, he says. Love or hatred. And he's talking about 
the actions in our lives. Is God going to bless us or discipline us? Is God going to put us on a trial? Put us through a tribulation? We don't know. How do you know? You can't. Trust God. Follow what he says here. Fear him. And then God will take care of you. He's got you in his hand. He's got you in his hand. Only God knows what is to come. He's not saying everything's chaos. Solomon's not saying, you know what? You can't know the future. It's all chaos. That's what people tell us today. That's what atheists say. It's all chaos. Some molecules bump together. Someday the molecules will just bump apart. Everything disappears. No, he's saying God has it in his hand. He will take care of you. You remember Job? We're back to Job. We're always back to Job with Ecclesiastes because they match up so good. You remember Job when he was suffering and God had done all these things? He had let Satan go and take away all of Job's business and all of Job's children. And his wife said, do you still hold fast your integrity? Do you still believe in God, Job? Curse God and die. That's what his wife said. What did he say though? What did he say back to her? You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Whatever God gives us, we accept. We're children. He's the father. The little children, the little babies in the family don't get to dictate what the parents do. The babies don't get to tell the parents how to live and how to take care of the babies. We're God's little children and God takes care of us. And Job says, good or bad, whatever God brings me today, I accept it. Doesn't mean it's pleasant. Job suffered a lot. He, he was in a lot of pain, both inside and physically. But everything is in the hands of God. Stop trying to play God is the point. Stop trying to play God. He's God. We're not God. As Solomon has had to remind us over and over throughout this book. Why does the Bible repeat itself? Why does the preacher keep saying the same thing throughout the sermon? Because it takes time for us to understand this. We have to actually live a while sometimes and then go back and say, yes, I understand now. That's why we take our time through a book like Ecclesiastes and not try to do it all in one sermon. 1 Corinthians 10.1, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and he says, you need to know the Old Testament. And here's why. These things in the Old Testament, these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. All of that was recorded for Israel. Yes. But Paul says also it's recorded for us new covenant believers. Gentiles even. Why? Why do we care about what happened to Israel? We need to know the history of redemption. Also, Paul says it's an example. So we know what not to do. And Solomon is writing this book and telling us what not to do. Sometimes it's by implication like it is here. Let's not complain. Let's not worry. God has us in his hand. Trying to have ultimate human wisdom will not save you. In other words, you can be as smart as any person who's ever lived and that will not save you. Even if you knew why God was doing things, that will not save you. You've got to turn to the Messiah. And then, then when we recognize that God has created all things and that they're in his hands, we can live a life that's pleasing to him. That's why you read the book of Hebrews and it starts off with the fact that Christ upholds all things. And in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. Why does he tell us Christ upholds all things? Why does Colossians tell us that Christ is the head of all things? That through, through him the world was created. All things were created. Why does he say that? 
Because if you believe in Christ, that you believe he is God and that he created everything. That's what it means to trust. How can you trust in Christ, the Son of God, unless you first believe he is the God of the universe, the very God that Solomon is talking about? We think Jesus is just uh, our friend, somebody who came and, yeah, he died on the cross, but he's, he's somebody I just like talk about to other people by name. Uh, I say I'm a Christian. No, the whole Bible says he's God. Yes, he's the God man. But church history always swings back and forth. And we talk about Christ a lot today in his humanity. Everybody loves that, especially other more liberal denominations and churches. What about Christ as God? That's what Solomon is saying. God created all things and God holds you in his hands and takes care of you. And the New Testament says that's Christ. Yes, there's the Father. Yes, there's the Son. And of course, they cooperate, work together. But Christ is taking care of you. As a Christian, you know, you have comfort that nothing happens that's chaotic. It's all in the plan of God. Every single moment of your life. All of it. This should be a comfort. That's what Charles Spurgeon said. God's sovereignty is the pillow that believers rest their head on. People like to debate God's sovereignty, predestination. It's comforting to the Christian. It's not just there for debate. It's comforting. Do you, do you want to believe in a God that doesn't even have control of what he created? That would even make sense logically. But who cares about logic when you have the word of God that's perfect and true? And it says that's who he is. So if you accept that all things are in the hand of God, you're going to be able to live a God-centered life. You're going to be able to live for God's glory. Secondly, though, the believer lives with a certainty, a certainty of seeing God. Even though we cannot be certain of what will happen next. Even though we cannot be certain of what our life is going to be like in a day, a week, or ten years. You can be certain of some things. You can be certain of some things because the Bible tells you, and it tells you, you're going to see God. None of us are going to live forever in this body, on this earth. There is going to be an end to our life, and we're going to go and see God. Now, the way he says this is typical Solomon, typical proverbial way here, but he does come to it. Verse 2, it is the same for all, everyone. There's one fate, is what the NASB says. I don't like the fate because it, it, it makes me think of uh, Greek mythology. Often the word fate is sort of an uncontrollable force that's out there pushing us. Better translated here, an event or a happening. There's one event that comes to all. There's one thing that everyone is going to have to go through. Go back to chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes in verse 14. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So there's the wise and there's the fool. And yet I know that one fate or one event befalls them both. The wise or the fool, they both go to one place. They both die, in other words. 3.19, he's touched on this before, 3.19, for the event of the sons of men and the event of beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath and there is no advantage for man over beast for all is Havel. All is a vapor. He's not saying animals and, and humans, spiritually speaking, are exactly the same. He's saying that all living things die. 
We're all a vapor. We look at animals and we say they have a short life, they die quickly, and then we think we're going to live forever. It's not true. We all have one happening, one event. Death comes to all mankind. No one's getting out of it. We like to think we can prolong it. Sometimes, from our perspective, we can do things that prolong it. We can get certain types of care when we need it. We can take care of our bodies. But according to God's timeline, you can't prolong God's appointed time for your death. Is that rewarding? Well, let's continue and see what he says. He says it's for everyone, the righteous and the wicked. That's from earth's perspective. Both end up in the same place. We know after death, they go to two different places. For the good, for the clean, and for the unclean. These are people who are ceremonially clean in Israel. They've done all the commands of God that are in Leviticus. They've done the cleansings and obeyed God's commands. Versus the people who don't care at all what God said. The unclean. They all die. So in other words, don't think that you can do all of these things and obey the Bible perfectly and somehow God's going to reward you with 200, 300 years, a thousand years in this life. For the man who offers a sacrifice. For the one who does not sacrifice. Even the people who don't even obey God through sacrifices, they die. And, and those who do obey God, they die. The good man, the one who is godly, the one who is redeemed, is going to also die. And the sinner who could care less about God's laws is also going to die. The one who swears, the one who takes an oath, the one who's afraid to take an oath, everyone is going to die. This is his poetic way of saying we're all going to die. Doesn't sound very happy. Doesn't sound very joyful, does it? We'll finish up on joy. Don't worry. But he's telling us this for a reason. He's telling us because we'll live in light of that fact. We're going to see God. For the believer, that's a wonderful thing. That we're going to die and see God. Is it going to be joyful to go through the pain of death? Not always. But we're going to see God. Solomon's simply stating the fact of how things look from an earthly perspective. It really sounds similar to even what Jesus said. God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God gives rain and food and housing and money and jobs to all people. Not just believers, but even the unbelievers. It's his common grace. And Solomon's looking out and saying, from the negative side of it, he's saying, everyone dies. This is, verse 3, an evil. Now, he's not saying God is evil. Remember, evil in the Old Testament can just be a calamitous event, a disaster, something that we would view as negative. This is a calamitous event. In other words, in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate, one event for all men. He's just saying, let's, let's be real. He's a realist. Let's be real. We're all going to die. Stop fooling yourself. Stop thinking that with a lot of money or pleasure or medicine or whatever it is that you can extend your life well into old age or even the second century. You don't know how long you're going to live and God is going to take your life when he takes your life. Now that's bad news to the world today. This is a message that you don't often hear in churches. We're all going to die. But that's what Solomon keeps on saying. And he's even saying, look, that's, that's tough. That's evil. That's bad. That's negative. 
And then he goes a step further. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. So instead of focusing on the fact that we're all going to die and meet God, you know what most of mankind does? Until, unless they're saved, most of mankind does what? Goes off into further sin. Live it up now. Buy as many toys as I can. Have fun now. You only live once, so have fun now and sin as much as you want. They're not worried about coming to God for salvation. They're not truly seeking God for a redeemer unless he changes their heart first. They want to sin as much as possible, Solomon says. He says it's bad enough that we all die and then there's mankind just running off into sin, rushing off into foolishness. He's talking about total depravity. He's really almost quoting Genesis 6-5. It doesn't have this part about insanity, but it says in Genesis 6-5, this is before the flood, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Solomon's alluding back to that. Remember, he had a Bible and it had Genesis in it. Only evil continually. There's got to be some people who are good. Only evil continually. The only good comes from God. And when God changes the heart, then that person can do good. Well, people say the flood came and took all of that away, right? There's no only evil continually after that. Well, here's what God said right after the flood. He's talking to Noah. He's talking about the Noahic covenant. And in the middle there, he says in Genesis 8, 21, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, from a young age, from a very young age, man wants to do evil. And Solomon says, it's bad enough that we don't even realize we're going to die. We run off into sin and think we can do what we want. We're going to see God someday though. Think about that. So he finishes off that verse by saying afterwards, they go to the dead. Yeah, they go and sin all they want and then they die. He doesn't tell us what's going to happen after they die. That's in other parts of the Bible. But the implication is our life is short and then we're going to see God. And he will tell us that by the end of Ecclesiastes. A poet once said, whether it be slow or fast, it is death that comes at last. Hebrews 9.7 said it's appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. There's no second chance. There's no second life. There's no reincarnation. One life, then you die, then you go to see God. And if you're not trusting in his son, you will be judged. You will be judged. But if you are, then you'll be blessed with eternity and the resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth. Warren Wearsby said, death is not an accident. It's an appointment. It's a destiny that nobody but God can cancel or change. God's in control of all things, even the day of our death. And then verse 4, he says, for whoever is joined with all the living, there's hope. Now here's some positive. We've been seeing the negative, the reality, the effects of the curse upon the earth. But if you're still alive, there's, there's hope. Literally, uh, the words better translated, confidence certitude or, or certainty. There's a certainty if you're still alive. What kind of certainty is he talking about? Well, as long as you breathe air, as long as your heart is beating, as long as you're alive, you have an opportunity. And he's going to go into that in a minute. But first he says something about dogs. And I know some of you really love dogs. Some of you treat your dogs like a child. But this was in the day before dogs slept in the bed with people. This was a day before it was man's best friend. And a dog was an unclean scavenger. A dog was something the Gentiles had, but the Jews did not have in their homes or even really owned them. 
But they ended up being around the villages because they would scavenge the food thrown out, the garbage, the waste. Don't think of the dog that's real cute in your house. Think of the mangy, disease-ridden mongrel on the streets of a city. And that's what they would have thought of back then. A live dog is better than a dead lion. Even the dog that none of them liked in the nation of Israel. Still, to be alive and be an unclean scavenger is better than a dead lion. The lion was the mightiest of beasts, Proverbs 30, 30. The lion was admired by all as a noble, powerful creature. As wonderful as the lion is, he's no good if he's dead. There's nothing left for him to look forward to if he's dead. Better to be a live dog. There's still time. There's still life. The lion has no confidence of anything changing in the future, but the dog does. The dog might be taken in by a Gentile, taken to a pet resort. His whole life will change. What kind of confidence or certainty does the, the person have who's still alive? What is, what is he talking about here? Well, you have a certainty of meeting God. It's not too late. In other words, if you're breathing air today, it's not too late. You will still meet God in the future. And now you know that. You already knew that, but now you know it for certain because here it is in the text. You will go to meet God. There's a hope. Better to be with the living. There's a hope. There's a confidence of meeting God. Death for the believer means going to live with God. We can be certain of that. The Bible says that from beginning to end. The believer gets to go and meet God and be with him face to face. There's also a certainty of, of God's glory being our goal in life. That's implied through this whole text here. That as long as we still breathe, as long as we still have a beating heart, we can go out and glorify God. And we can do more good for him. And then another certainty that he's going to open up in verses 5 and 6 is that our life that we're living now is important. It's not a waste. Sometimes Christians think it'd be better if I just died right now and went to heaven. And truly heaven is better. But if you're still here, God has a purpose for you. And he wants you to do something for his glory. And so Solomon opens that up in the next few verses. For the living know they will die. But the dead do not know anything. Nor have they any longer a reward. For their memory is forgotten. The reward here is not a final reward. It's not heaven. It's a portion on this earth. There's nothing for the dead to do. Once they're dead, there's no second chance. There's nothing to do. The living still have opportunity. The living still have opportunity to do something for God is the implication. The dead, they have nothing to focus on. Their body's in the ground. In other words, focus on living your life now for God. Live your life now for God. Don't, don't wait. You know, when my kids get out of the home, I'll have more time to really study God's word. When I get this new job, then I'll start to grow as a Christian. If I could just marry this person, I'm sure I'd be really sanctified. Sometimes that does help. But we make a lot of excuses. I'll really be committed to church when I move a little closer. I'll really be committed to my prayer life someday when X, Y, and Z happens. If you're breathing, then live for God's glory now. Verse 6, indeed their love, their hate, and their zeal have already perished. Talking about the dead. No matter what they were in life, they're gone. And they will no longer have a share, have something to do, have a portion in all that is done under the sun. 
And the word in Hebrew here that follows it is forever. Olam. To eternity. They're gone. They're not coming back under the sun on this earth. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. And some will be there. Those who trust in God. Those who trust in Christ. But from our perspective, under the sun now, they're gone. Death is permanent. Once you're dead and gone, there's no second chance. How many times does the Bible have to say that? And you still have Christians today saying people get a second chance. People get a second chance after death. Purgatory. The whole doctrine of purgatory. Unbelievers don't get a second chance to trust in Christ. There's not a second go around. Oh, I didn't get to trust in Christ this time. I put it off to the end. I suddenly died in a car wreck. God, I'm going to go back. That's what all the movies say. Right? I get to go back. Sometimes as a dog. There's a fascination with dogs. I have dogs, by the way. So don't send me emails about your dog. <laughs> Believers, you don't get a second opportunity to do good. Once you're gone, you're gone. And there will be a judgment for believers. It won't be a judgment to send you to hell. It will be a judgment of rewards. A bema seat judgment. A rewards judgment. What did you do with your time, your treasure, your resources? What did you do for God's glory? Jesus says this in John 9, 4. We must work the works of him who sent me. He says we. He's talking to his disciples. We must work the works of him who sent me. As long as it is day, night is coming when no one can work. There's a time coming when you won't be able to do these things. Your life here will be done. Did you spend it wisely or did you waste it? Did you use every moment for God's glory or did you waste it? There's a time coming and we're going to meet God. So let's live for his glory. If you're a believer here today, live for his glory. If you're an unbeliever, you need to trust in Christ because that meeting with God won't be pleasant. It won't be good. You'll fall on your face and be sent into eternal punishment. The last point, the third point, the third principle. There's an urgency to enjoying God's gifts in life. And really, this is a whole sermon in itself. He's been telling us, enjoy the gifts that God gives you all through the book. But for this one, he really opens it up. And he says, there's an urgency. You see how he starts verse 7? Go. Go then, in our translation, in Hebrew, it's just go. It's an imperative. It's a command. Go now. Don't wait. Go and do this immediately. Stop waiting to do what he's about to tell us. There's no time to mess around. Stop being angry. Stop being downcast. Stop being anxious. Stop worrying about everything. Stop being legalistic. Stop being dour. Stop thinking you can be holier than Jesus by going through life always being stoic and serious. Because all the things he's going to tell us, or about rejoicing, enjoying life, enjoying the gifts that God has given you. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Psalm 118, verse 24. He's going to tell us specifically how to enjoy God's gifts, what they are, and how we should enjoy them. He's going to give us a list. And it's a short list. We could add more to it, of course. The Bible does. But let's not go through life being legalistic. You know, I've always got to be serious. I can never have an enjoyable time with friends. I can never have dinner with somebody and laugh. You know, I, I can never take a sip of alcohol. Sometimes you shouldn't if you've had a problem with it. The Bible is going to tell us right here. Eat your bread in happiness. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart. Live life to the fullest for the glory of God. So we've heard the world say that so much that we think you can't do that as a Christian. You can if it's for the glory of God, enjoying His gifts that He's given you. 
You can't according to the world. You can't go their way and, and do as much sin as you want. But God has given you bread. He's given you food. Eat it in happiness. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart. Don't sin in eating and drinking. That would be antinomian. That would be saying, I ignore God's law. That's antinomian. Against the law. A lot of Christians do that today. Say they're a Christian and they go and do whatever they want. But don't be ascetic either. Don't think you've got to give up everything, put on a burlap sack, and go live in a cave. Doesn't say that in scripture either. Look at this. Eat your bread in happiness. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved your works. Approved here means divine favor, divine acceptance. And God only approves that which is in conformity to his will. The things that you do in accordance with his holy word. He's saying there's things that God has already approved. Meaning the good work that he's already predestined for you. God has already set up all the things you're going to do as a believer. And as you're doing them, he is giving you rewards in this life. And of course, we'll have the eternal reward. But we ought to enjoy his gifts now. Not make them an idol. Not worship them. We don't worship food. We don't worship drink. The other things that he's going to list here. But we enjoy them the way God intended. You can't enjoy life as a believer. If you're fearing God, if you're obeying his will... And you know that he's already approved your godly actions. In other words, Solomon doesn't want us to think, you know what, I'm going to do good for God and I'll be rewarded in the next life, but I'm not going to get anything in this life that would be good. There's a lot of Christians who think like that. I'm going to be downcast. I'm not expecting anything good in this life. I'm just going to look forward to the next. We should look forward to the next. It is going to be greater than we can ever imagine, but there are things in this life that God gives us. And he's already taught us that, 2.26. You can read these later. Chapter 2, verse 26. Chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 7, verse 26. If you have peace with God, if you are reconciled to God, then you're accepted by Him. You're part of His family. He gives you good gifts. Do you give your children and your grandchildren good gifts? Now? You don't say, you know, child, when you turn 25, that's when I'll start giving you birthday presents. That's when I'll start giving you something good. That's when I'll start feeding you. No, God does that from the moment we're saved. He really was doing that beforehand, but even more so now that we're redeemed. And you ought to be happy because God has favorably accepted you and the work that you've done for Christ. You didn't earn your salvation by that, but now you've been saved and you're working for the glory of God. And he goes on in verse 8, let your clothes be white all the time. These are, these are clothes that people would wear to stay cool and also to... Go out and rejoice together, have an event, have a party. Let not your oil be lacking on your head. Oil perfumes the head. Again, it relieves the heat, the itching, the dry skin, and drier climates. In other words, you know what? It's okay to go to the beach. It's okay to go to the pool and take a dip. It's okay to relax every once in a while. I don't do it all the time. But he says, it's okay. Go. Enjoy the gifts that God has given you. Don't be like Martin Lloyd-Jones, as much as I love the guy. He wore a suit to the beach. He never took off his suit, even on the beach. There's pictures. Everybody else is in swimsuits enjoying themselves, and he's got a coat and tie and a vest and everything. It's all right to celebrate the good gifts God has given you. And he ends on a big one, verse 9. Enjoy life with the woman, the Isha, which really in the context here is wife. Enjoy life with 
the woman, the wife whom you love. God has given marriage as a gift to enjoy. It's good. Marriage is a good thing. Genesis 2.23, when Eve is created, the woman. Adam says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, Isha, because she was taken out of man, Ish, in Hebrew. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 5.18, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Rejoice. Enjoy. Proverbs 18.22, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 31.10, An excellent wife who can find, for her worth is far above rubies, jewels. Marriage is good. It's a good thing. It's the normal thing in the Christian life. There are some called to singleness, some who are single now and that will be married. But he's saying, enjoy that. It's actually a picture of the gospel. You remember that in the New Testament? Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Your marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. And then Hebrews 13.4, Marriage is to be held in honor among all. There are people today who say marriage is not godly. There are groups who call themselves Christian who say pastors or priests can't get married. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. Undefiled. Solomon says, go and enjoy life with your spouse. Now notice, he says enjoy life. He's not talking about just enjoying your spouse. Yes, of course, that would be included in enjoying, in enjoying life. That's true. But the emphasis on going through life together with your spouse Enjoying the things of life. There are a lot of people who are married who don't enjoy things in life together. And it's the woman you love. Your spouse that you love. That you take care of. That you cherish. Not the one you hate. Not the one that you try to, to make a miserable marriage with. The one that you love. In other words, if you're married, that's the one you're supposed to love. And if you don't, then come in. See Frank for biblical counseling. The spouse that you love. For this is your reward, he says. It's a reward at the end of the verse. But before that, he's saying, all the days of your Havel, your fleeting, that's a good translation for it, fleeting Havel life, which he has given you under the sun. And as I said, the NASB leaves out the last part, all your Havel days. You have a fleeting life, and not just a life, but even your days are fleeting. You better enjoy what God has given you. You better enjoy your marriage. You don't even know if you're going to be here tomorrow or your spouse is going to be here tomorrow. Enjoy it today. Don't say, I'm going to work on my marriage next year, next month. Don't say, I'm going to really start loving my wife sometime next week. Today. Now. Go now, he says. For this is your reward. The thing that you're going to get in this life are these good blessings from God. And in your toil, your work, your labor, in which you have labored under the sun. We give our children gifts. They enjoy them. God gives us gifts. And sometimes as Christians, we say, you know what, God? I'm not supposed to enjoy this life. Well, he originally created it good. And even though it's cursed and even though there's sin everywhere, there are still good things that God gives us. So stop feeling guilty about enjoying the good things that even Scripture says is good. Rejoice. Celebrate. Enjoy them. And be careful they don't turn into idols, but enjoy them. This is what God has 
taught us here. This is what Solomon is saying are good principles. They're not all the principles of a God-centered life, but they're three that he lists here in the passage. So we ought to be striving to remember them, to practice them, to live by them. And just know that if you're in Christ, he's taking care of you. He's given you good gifts. He's taking care of you. If you're not in Christ, none of these promises apply. Death is coming. Yeah, that still applies. But you really don't have much joy. You really don't have anything to look forward to. So when you hear this Bible preached, realize it's for believers, but it has the message of salvation in it, even for unbelievers to hear, to believe, and to turn to Christ for salvation. Let's now pray that God would make this evident in our lives. Lord, we do pray today. We pray that you would remind us of these things, that you would write them on our hearts. These are promises in Scripture. We will see you very soon. Some of us very soon we'll see you and others maybe a little longer. We don't even know who those are. But let us live for you now. We want to be focused on you, God. Christ has redeemed us. Christ has paid for our sins. Why? So that we might live for you. I pray that we would do that here. That everybody in this building would go out today and do the very things that we've learned about. That we would put them into practice. We would be good expository listeners, doers of the word. And others would say, why is your marriage so great? Let people ask us that, Lord. Let people ask us why we can enjoy life when it seems to be crumbling around us. We pray that you would give us more opportunities with others to explain that, to teach these truths. Bless us. Give us the Spirit's power and ability to do these things. In Jesus' name, amen.